0: All right, good morning. Um, uh, I want to do what I did it uh, last time around the test, just to walk very quickly through the test questions and uh, sort of test myself. How would I respond to them? Uh, uh, There's a lot for today to cover, so um, I will rush. Um, uh, Let me just one more time emphasize uh, Uh, You have plenty of time to do that, right? Uh, I have a discussion section at 7, so I don't want to risk that something is going on wrong with the internet, so I will post this before my discussion section, uh, before 7, exactly when I don't know. I mean, I have these anxieties what uh, Hobbes was talking about, and therefore I don't want, I prefer to be five minutes early rather than being an hour late, right? So sometimes before 7 you will find it and you have to send your answer around 9 o'clock. If uh, uh, some of you communicated that uh, you need another time because you are uh, already engagements, uh, um, it is always uh, you have to work this out with your uh, discussion section leader, right? Um, and your discussion section leader will take care of your, your needs. Um, uh, and be, be brief, right? Sort of the two questions should be about uh, more like four to six um, double-spaced uh, pages rather than much longer. I mean, we will accept eight. So we will not, you, you will not be penalized if you are longer, but the point is not to be long but to, to, be, to be crispy. Um, and again, the point is, you know, you, know, you try to show uh, uh, the different views of the authors and then comment on it, whether, which is more sensible, right? And a third, a third, a third, right, of a paper goes this way. You spend a third presenting one author, a third about an opponent of that author, and then uh, your reflections on it, right? That's about it. So let me then rush through, this is not an easy question, right, Marx's theory of alienation Nietzsche or Freud's theory of um, uh, civilization. I mean there is a common feature, right, between the three authors. Uh, uh, This really asks to create a controversy between the two, right, you can pick two uh, usually. Um, The common feature is that they are all concerned about modernity and, and people's sense of being lost and being without control in modernity. And the problem of modernity that we are too much controlled and the control is increasingly inside us rather than outside and coercive, right? I think that's the common feeling. Uh, uh, I think I made uh, uh, this point uh, uh, in in the lecture. Um, If you read uh, 20th century literature, particularly first half, you (coughs) find this feeling expressed by a lot of novelists. You read Franz Kafka, right, uh, uh, you you read uh, Albert Camus, that's where you get that same feeling expressed uh, to what Marx, Nietzsche and Freud are responding to. But there are big differences, right? Uh, Marx uh, uh, tries to move away from Hegel and uh, wants to come down to Earth and offer a theory of alienation which is rooted in the economy, in, into the production process. And Marx has a view of what emancipated society will be and he even has a historic agent who will get us there uh, to emancipation, the proletariat. Uh, now Nietzsche is very different, right? The genealogical method does not really offer you the right solution, right? The genealogical method uh, only shows you uh, what is unique uh, in modernity, in modern morality, in the Judeo-Christian morality, what you think is so attractive and so noble, and he shows right um, how right in the workshop where ideas are produced, it's actually torture and oppression what operates right? So there is no uh, good society and no agent who will get you there, right You have to do it by yourself. Now Freud is also sees civilization um, as uh, coming from repression of sexual drives. Uh, So he is a critique of civilization, right? Um, But at the same time, Freud has this dual attitude about civilization, right? Uh, Civilization is coming from repression, but it is still sublimation. And the most beautiful things uh, in human society, art and science, are coming from this sublimation. And he's also reflecting, he's writing in 1930 to the rise of Nazism and anti-civilization. Right, and he does not want to support that, right? So in a way, you know, one can say that what he does not have, he does not offer you the vision of good society. To some extent, he is with Nietzsche. He said, you have to emancipate yourself. You have to figure out for yourself what your problem is. Uh, and he does, certainly does not have a historic agent like Marx has. Anyway, this is the way how I would be dealing with this. And I will, will not tell you what my opinion is. I want to hear your opinion about it. Uh, OK, the second question. Uh, that's not, not easy either. Practical theory of th- uh, truth and Nietzsche genealogical method. Well, there is, again, a common em- element between uh, Marx and Nietzsche neither of them believes in objective abstract truths, right? Um, uh, Marx says there is no objective abstract truth, uh, truth is a practical question, truth is being achieved by, the int- by human practices, right? Uh, and Nietzsche of course does not believe in, in, in ob- objective truths, right? Uh, he's trying to find truths. But truth is being accomplished by comparing you know, different uh, notions of morality and to show that in comparison with each other, both have its upsides and downsides. Right? So there is, uh, um, uh, 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 he, uh, by the way, Nietzsche, don't misunderstand him, he is not a nihilist. He, doesn't, he does not say everything goes. Nihilism. Uh, is, is, is a very negative term for Nietzsche. So he does not want to say there is no truth at all, he said truth is just relative and you can arrive at critical understanding of your situation by comparing your situation with, with an other one. There is of course a very fundamental difference again between uh, Marx and, and Nietzsche because what is this practical truth? These are human activities, and Marx basically arrives at these human activities uh, uh, through changing the physical world, through the system of production. And again, he has the agent who is, uh, 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 this is the revolutionary practices of the proletariat, which will get you to the truth. There is nothing like that in Nietzsche, right? Nietzsche does not have a historical agent. And does not have uh, the society uh, where, after all, uh, 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 you will get uh, uh, to true society. Now, well, this is actually a very simple question. Can, you know, many of you did not like it, so I'm, con- you know, I'm thinking very hard whether to put it on. It's a bit narrow, but very simple. Um, German ideology and the Grundrisse very simple there are two unique features in the german ideology one is when he, de- he does develop the notion of mode of production for the first time in this book 45 uh, 1845 but he d- does identify the nature of a, 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 a mode of production primarily by division of labor and this doesn't serve him very well because the division of labor does not capture The conflictuous relationship between classes which eventually will have to lead to revolution. So he abandons, he does not finish the book because only at the very end of the book does he realize that uh, uh, the two component of uh, uh, mode of production are uh, forces of production technology and relations of production, and relations of production uh, for most of the German ideology is division of labor. And then he realizes, no, 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 it is not division of labor but uh, property relations, the relationship between those who have property and those who do not have property. Um, and he also has a very deterministic view of history in the German ideology. All societies have to go through the same modes of production. Uh, tribalism, slave mode of production, feudalism, and capitalism. Uh, in the Grundrisse there are two big innovations. Now the center is property relations, uh, history, the, uh, the, the peak of history of capitalism when the producer is separated from the means of production completely. Um, and he breaks from the uh, uh, deterministic view of history, right? Now he has this multilinear uh, development of history. Not every society has to come through slavery and feudalism. The Asiatic societies in a a quasi-communal society can move directly into capitalism. Okay, so that's basically a very simple question. Uh, I probably did a very bad job in the lecture that this did not become clearer. Uh, so, Form, Marx is a historical materialist, and compare him with Freud. Well, uh, I actually am inspired here by uh, Jurgen Habermas, and Jurgen Habermas says, well, Marx in the thesis on Feuerbach got it right when he said that the real point of departure is sensuous human activity. At that time, when Habermas was writing this, he was still a materialist. Then he had his culture turn, and he's probably not a materialist any longer. He said materialism is if you point of departure is what you can get through your senses, not through your ideas. But he said Marx made a mistake, Uh, namely that he reduced senseless human activities to the economy, um, and to production. And there he said. Uh, Freud is more interesting because he has a different kind of senseless human activity. And this is senseless human activities between people, right, sexual relationships. In fact Habermas makes it more complicated. You know, it's, uh, I don't want to get into Habermas. But his interpretation of Freud is that Freud is also starts from senseless human activity to understand what is in people's mind. But it is not economic reductionism. If anything, it is sexual uh, uh, reductionism, right? It is a pan-erotic explanation of history. But in some ways, you know, they all starts for sensuous human activities in explaining what can be in people's mind, what is our ideas. So the starting point is material sensuous experience, right? And the product are ideas, right? This is in this sense they are both materialist but in different ways. Is that, I I suppose this should be pretty clear now, right? Okay, Uh, classes. Well, you can have different views on this, uh, and especially whether Marx's theory of classes are still applicable. You know Marx defined classes in terms of property relationship. He had two classes uh, in the Communist Manifesto, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. Uh, The question is does it still matter, and you have to reflect on this. Do you think property relations still is a major antagonistic divide in American society or not any longer? And of course Marx believed in the communist manifesto, yes, there is still a middle class, but it will wither away. Middle class will become either bourgeois or um, it become uh, proletarian. And, of course, in the United States the received wisdom is that we are all middle class. Are we all middle class? Uh, I would like to hear your view about this, right? But that's the big question. Clearly Marx did get it wrong, that's undoubtedly. I think everybody agrees. I think Karl Marx, if he would be alive, he would say, oh, I screwed it. I made a mistake. Of course, that is a big middle class. Right? Um, so, I mean, uh, you, don't have, you, you don't have to really uh, hate Marx, you know, that there is a middle class. He clearly made a mistake, right? Uh, anyway, but you can, you can ask the question who is the middle class? Are I- indeed we all middle class? Is, there, is it sensible to talk about the big bourgeoisie? Well, there are no big bourgeoisie any longer. This is people's capitalism we live in. And uh, these are the questions I would like you to deal with. Okay, labor theory of value and Adam Smith, I thought this is a very easy question, right? Uh, Adam Smith said uh, that, you know, all uh, uh, value is created by labor, but then he said when it comes to distributing uh, uh, wealth or income it has to go to labor, capital, and uh, land. Uh, Marx on the other hand said, well, this is contradiction if all labor goes to if all value is created by labor it should go to labor and therefore if it is taken away for labor should be understood as exploitation is this an advance or is this uh, a misunderstanding and you can say well this is a misunderstanding uh, because uh, adam smith was right he said all labor is uh, all, all uh, value is created by labor in societies where capital is not accumulated and the land is not privately owned And therefore, this is a consistent argument. Or you can say, well, Marx actually got a very important point, because there is indeed exploitation. There are exploitative relationships. And it does drive history. I mean, how you take your uh, position, this is up to you. You you have to argue consistently, that, and the argument of consistency will be rewarded, seven. Uh, well, this is, again, a lot of people said don't do it because we have not talked about domination. I probably leave it because I will talk in the, uh, in the next, uh, uh, how much I have got, uh, uh, 40 minutes about this, uh, uh, domination and mode of production and what domination is. Well, Protestant ethic, was he as an idealist? Some people think this is a too narrow question. Well, I think you kind of um, uh, can um, uh, ask the question, is this really an idealist view? Some people said but Weber is saying, that it is uh, Calvinism which created uh, capitalism. Is this his view? What is exactly his view? Uh, um, is, uh, he is, uh, is uh, very critical of Marx. Um, uh, is uh, 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 he believes that you know Marx has a simplistic uh, materialist explanation. It is consciousness which deter- it is existence which determines consciousness rather than the other way around. Um, is uh, Weber saying the opposite? It is uh, consciousness which determines existence or capitalism, and uh, that's that's what uh, the Protestant ethic is trying to do. Uh, And, of course, he has this interesting notion of elective affinity, questions whether there is really a causal relationship between ideas and the economy, and you can labor on this uh, what he might mean and what you think, this is a cop-out, right, that he actually, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, is Marx more of a contemporary social theorist, because he has a causal explanation. He tries to give causal explanation, and that's what you are told in political science or economics. Real social science comes up with causal explanations, right? And Marx, Weber shies away, and Marx tries to do causal analysis. Okay. Uh, uh, uh. Did I miss nine? Well, this is very much a, uh, very very similar to the uh, previous question here. only I ask you to compare the two. Is Marx really a simple minded economic, deterministic uh, determinist? Uh, it is uh, existence which determines consciousness, or is he has a has a more complicated view uh, th- Is there a contradiction in Marx, right? Uh, the philosophy of praxis that we are making history he also makes that claim how does it fit? does he simply contradict himself or is this a consistent ideology? And you know Weber is he an idealist or he is not really an idealist what does he mean by this elective affinity and then the finally the final question I think uh, people seem to be liking this. Uh, Not easy, by the way. Marx clearly has uh, a notion of um, uh, 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 human nature, right? Marx believes uh, is a Rousseauian, and even more radical than Rousseauian theory of human nature, especially in his theory uh, of uh, uh, alienation, right? We are good, and the problem comes as society uh, makes us uh, alienated. But I think he goes a little beyond... uh, Uh, Rousseau because he thinks that in the state of nature we are actually social. Uh, Being social is in our nature, Uh, right? Uh, Rousseau did not think so. Um, uh, The mobile savage has to be socialized into civil society. Marx believes that this whole idea of state of nature is an abstraction, we are all born in society and by nature we are social. Only capitalism which makes us competitive, competitive bourgeois individuals makes us asocial asocial and egoistic. Now, does Weber has a theory of human nature? It's a more difficult question to pose. Uh, I think if, if I would argue, I would say if Weber does have one, it is closer to Hobbes. Uh, because he does believe that people, uh, the, the history of humankind is a struggle for power, uh, yeah, unending struggle for power, and that's, that's why he explained human history with power struggles. That's about it. That's the way how I would in a nutshell try to deal with this. And I hope this was uh, somewhat helpful uh, and uh, makes you relaxed, right? That this will not be a difficult test; uh, it will be actually a lot of fun to deal with these uh, uh, intriguing, interesting issues. Okay, uh, and believe me, I really want you to have fun. I uh, 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 I think these are in- interesting questions. Uh, uh. Okay, now we come to Weber theory of domination, and that's almost impossible what I'm trying to do now, but we'll try to rush you through. Um, And first of all, we have to understand Weber's theory of um, action, uh, uh, which uh, uh, has some similarities to Hobbes uh, and and Hobbes' theory of Voluntaristic Action. Uh, But then uh, we also have to deal with Weber's uh, notion of rationality. Uh, And then uh, his distinction between power and domination, uh, his theory of legitimacy, this is very, very important. Uh, It's uh, one of the most fundamental uh, concepts uh, uh, in uh, particularly in political theory but also in economics and in sociology. Um, And finally his types of authority, we will deal at great with different types of authority, I just give you a sense what this is in the la- next 25 minutes. Okay, the four types of economic action. He makes a distinction. the The question is, how can how are we orienting with each other? What motivates us when we are interacting with other people? He said, Well, we can act instrumentally rationally, and I will explain it to you what he means. And then he said, We can also act value rationally, and again, we'll come explain what this means. Uh, we, uh, in, in our interaction, we can be uh, led by our emotions. And he said, This is, well, whether this is rational, he said this is not an unrational thing. It, it, it is not necessarily unrational that we act out of our emotions. And I will tell you when he thinks this is becoming irrational, acting out of emotion. Or in our interactions, we can be led by tradition. Now to understand this, that you know, that we we actually interact with each other in very different ways. Over time, you know, with the same person, we can act occasionally instrumentally, or occasionally we can act um, effectually, right? Occasionally we act towards somebody because we have a great deal of emotional feeling, love or hate, and occasionally we can act instrumentally, right? We use somebody in order to achieve somebody. Can I borrow twenty dollars from you, right? Then we act instrumentally. Uh, but we also can act out of uh, hate or, or love, right? Um, in a discussion section, I really hate the guts of somebody who is over-speaking, right? In the discussion section, and then I just will contradict because, you know, I just, It is my antagonism. Or I just sympathize with somebody and therefore I also tend to disagree, basically driven by my emotion. And now I'm even not talking about love, which combines people uh, more. Now, what is behind this is Weber's fundamental methodology. He calls his approach to society, uh, interpretative sociology, The term Interpretative Sociology is translated from German. The German term is Verstehen. Verstehen means understanding. Occasionally, we also translate it into English, that what Weber does is understand. What Weber's strong commitment is that social analysts, be it an economist be a political scientist, be a sociologist, be a historian, be an anthropologist, is not to pass value judgments on others, but to try to understand what drives other people. Don't assume that other people, because they act differently than you would act in their situation, that they are dumb, evil, or irrational, right? This is particularly a debate with economists. Economists tend to have, right, very strong conception, that there is one economically rational behavior. Weber said, no, I mean, there are various type of ways how we can act, and my job is not to say, now you were irrational. My job is to try to put myself into your position and to understand why you did and why you did the way how you did it. This is interpretative sociology, right? This is understanding, first right? That I emotionally try to put myself into your situation, and rather than saying, this is what I would do, I will say, if I were you, right, in your situation, would I do the same thing? Why why do you do that the way how you do, do? Assuming that you are not acting irrationally, but try to understand. While you act the way you act, okay? Now let's talk about instrumentally rational action. This comes to the closest what most economists, especially neoclassical economists, regard as rational economic action. He said instrumentally uh, rational action, he calls it um, uh, uh, zweckrationalität, is when the ends and the means are all rationally taken into account and weighted, right? This is kind of utility maximization, right? When you, utilitarians define this as the rational way to act, right? That you, have, you are striving for happiness and you try to achieve this happiness and in this process you maximize utility. You try to reduce the expenses and you try to increase the return on uh, uh, what you try to achieve. But let me also emphasize that Weber's notion of instrumental rationality does not say that the ends are irrational, right? Uh, and Weber very much like John Stuart Mill is quite aware that we actually do have preferences. And there are some ends what we find more valuable than other ends. Instrumental rationality only means if in order to achieve this end is too costly for us, then we probably will go for our second preference rather than our first preference. Right? Uh, So, uh, well, I would like to date somebody. Um, uh, I very much would like to date that person, but in order to have a successful date, I have to take this person into a four-, five-star restaurant. Well, that dinner will cost me $200. Well, there is another person whom I would not mind to date, you know, my second preference, and that would go with a two-star restaurant and would cost me only 50 bucks and therefore you know i will wait you know is the my preference for the first date is so strong that it is worse for me to pay $200 or it's actually not that much stronger my second preference is actually pretty good and therefore i actually go for the $50 dinner you see what i'm getting at so you are waiting rationally both the ends And the means, uh, and you come to a conclusion. Again, you know, not all that far away from Hobbes, right? And Hobbes' idea, right? Uh, That we are, you know, we we do have these drives, we have these appetites, and we have these fears, and then we arrive at a will. This is instrumental rationality. But he said people can act value rationally, and if somebody acts value rationally, I am not willing to call them. Irrational, value rationality if somebody says this value is so important for me that I don't care what is the price I will have to pay for it, right? Um, uh, Let me give you a very simple example, right? You actually may think that human life is particularly valuable, right? Now uh, uh, you or your partner may be expecting a child. And then you will have to make a decision. Will you give birth to this child or will you have an abortion, right? And then it can come back to value rationality, right? People can say that the life of uh, an unborn child is so superior for me that do I know it is a very crazy stuff for me to have a child or my partner to have a child right now, I will do it, you know, because I am acting value rationally. I know it is instrumentally irrational, right? I may have to quit school you know, in order to earn an income or to take care of the baby or something, and i actually screwing my life, but I don't mind, right, because I have such a strong value commitment. You see what I'm getting at? And you, you cannot say this is irrational behavior, right? This is rational behavior because people have a commitment to an ultimate value. And this ultimate value occasionally is so high that you are sacrificing your economic interest and occasionally you sacrifice your life. You are willing to die for noble causes, right? And you do it, right, Um, uh, um, uh, 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 rationally. You wait but you you know that you will die. And if you know that you will die for this noble cause, one cannot say that you are acting irrationally. A factual orientation. A factual orientation means that you are led by emotions. He said it can be on the borderline, because if it is simply an uncontrolled reaction to a situation, then it is irrational, right? If you're simply acting out of anger, then you were irrational, right? Um, when you are drunk uh, in a party and you are saying something to your partner and your relationship is breaking up, you, you actually wanted this relationship to go on. Next morning you wake up and said, my goodness gracious, what have I done, right? I was dumb, I was irrational, I was led you know, by emotions, I said things that I should not have said. In this case, emotion was irrational. It was um, an uncontrolled reaction to a stimulation. But otherwise, to act out of love and to make sacrifices for love is very rational, right? We do this all the time, right? Your parents do it. You know, they send you to to Yale and they pay two hundred thousand dollars to get you a Yale degree, right? Well, very well aware that. Probably they will never get anything like that back from you, right? Uh, They hope they will get some love back from you, and they might or they might not, right? But you know, they act out of love and you know, some people may say, you are crazy, why you invest so much uh, to to your children, they will put you in a home of uh, elderly, right? When you get old, nobody will take care of you, right? Uh, well they, but the answer is, but I love my child and I will want won the best for my child, right? This is a very, not irrational behavior. Uh, well justified. Anyway, these are uh, uh, traditional orientation where you act out of tradition, right? Um, uh, well, some people actually still believe in arranged marriages, right? Uh, certainly if you are Islamic or even if you are an Orthodox Jew. You probably want to choose your partner through an arranged marriage, right? You go to the rabbi, and the rabbi will arrange the marriage for you. You you have to be pretty orthodox. But there are some orthodox Jews who do. Many Muslims who do that. Is it irrational? Not irrational. Uh, Actually, one can say romantic love is not all that bloody rational, you know. The whole idea that you see somebody fall in love, and next day you propose, that seems to be a pretty silly thing to do. Is not it is much better to go to the rabbi who knows you, who knows your potential uh, partner, and arranges the marriage for you? Anyway, the point is right. Tradition can guide your action, and that's again not irrational. It is only irrational if it is completely unthinking. That's, uh, I think that's very important to say. Um, there must, if it is self-conscious, you know what you do. I do it because I am a, a Jew. I, I am doing it because I am a fun, you know because I am a, um, a, a reborn Christian, and that's what reborn Christians do, right? If you follow this way, you know, then you are acting rationally, uh, or not acting irrationally, to put it more. Now, what is rationality? Well, I think the key, it's a very complex notion for me, and there, you can have different interpretation. No, I will give you my interpretation. I think what is important, right, that rationality means that you sub substitute unthinking uh, acceptance of a situation and uh, um, uh, 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 not thought out uh, uh, spontaneous reactions to deliberate adaptation. So, when you are conscious about what you are doing, uh, then you are actually acting rationally, or at least you are not acting irrationally. He makes a distinction between rational, which is uh, giving a great deal of thought, and non-rational, where actually there is still some reflection going on. Uh, uh, Schluchter, a major uh, Weber scholar who knows much more about Weber than I do, though I have read this book cover to cover a couple of times. Um, uh, I haven't read all the sixty volumes of Weber cover to cover, but have left quite a bit of it. Anyway, but Schluchter have read everything uh, uh, more than once. This is his interpretation. He said the question is means and ends. Instrumental rationality is the ultimate rationality because you consider both means and ends. And he said value rationality is a lower level of rationality because you do not consider really um, uh, uh, means any longer, right? Ends dominate. And traditionally the factual rationality are more marginal types of rationality. Well, um, I would uh, offer you an alternative interpretation. This is my reconstruction of Jürgen Habermas, which said, well, what Weber is emphasizing is what is the level, right, of your reflexivity. Do you really think about what you are doing? And also to what extent you can communicate to others what you are doing. And if you do it this way, you can have reflexivity, which is very high. So you think very hard while you are doing, and you are aware what the motivation of your action is. And you can explain it to a great deal to others. If this is so, I think this is really Habermas. Value rationality is the highest level of rationality, right? Because you can really explain your values very well. Instrumental rationality. There is not much to say. This only I am making more money this way, right? Um, therefore, the level of uh, communication is relatively low. Though you know very well what you are doing. Anyway, I just leave it for you. Don't want to elaborate on this anymore. But the bottom line is, for Weber, rationality is really has something to do how conscious you are of what you are doing and how conscious you are of the consequences of your action. You are irrational when you you don't know what the consequences of your action are. Now, power and domination. Uh, Weber makes a fundamental difference between power, in German, Macht, and domination. And and this is a very important citation, right? Power is the probability that an, an actor within a social relationship will be in a position to carry out his own will despite resistance. You can resist and nevertheless the person who is in power can force you to do what you want to do." He said, well, this actually very rarely happens in social situations. What typically defines social situa- situation is relations of domination, that's what he calls Herrschaft. Um, uh, um, Uh, Domination uh, is the probability that a command will be obeyed, right? Uh, The difference, right, between uh, 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 power, uh, uh, domination, this is sort of my little equation here, domination is nothing else but power and legitimacy, right? The people who hold power try to legitimate what they do, you know, I was trying to do this in the first twenty minutes. Look, you know, you have these questions which sounds difficult. They are not difficult. They are exciting. You know, they. Are, I try to legitimate myself. This is sensible that you try to answer this question. You will learn. You know, you will understand society better. You will understand yourself better if you think about these questions. Right? I was trying to legitimate the process rather than just acting out of power. If by 9 o'clock it will not be here, you will get an F, right? And then you will be in big trouble, right? You will not get your degree. No, I did not want to legitimate. I try to legitimate what we will be doing this afternoon, right? By the legitimacy saying this will be sensible for you to do, you benefit from it, right? I try to internalize. Right? What I want you to do between seven and nine, that you beginning to believe this is good for me that I'm doing it. It is fun, right? I'm learning, I'm enriching myself, this is my self-development. right? So I was trying to convert right, power into domination. Um, and, right? and that is legitimacy, a claim that what I'm doing when I'm asking you, uh, 7 o'clock, you know, not to have a, um, a, a, a cocktail uh, but to sit down in front of your computer and to write a test is good for you, right? And if you internalize it and you're beginning to think how wonderful, you know, that I can delay the, this uh, cocktail for two hours, right? Then I achieved. Then I, you know, then it was domination rather than power, right? Is that clear? Um, Now, what is legitimacy? This is a very tricky question, and uh, well, I have my own view. Many people will vehemently disagree with me. Uh, He said, and that's very important, every genuine form of domination implies a minimum of voluntary compliance. That is an interest in obedience, right? Uh, Unless I could persuade you that you will feel well, uh, 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 I actually uh, uh, could, you know, I could drop this course and not to take this test. This is too difficult, I just drop the course. I can live without this course. Uh, uh, you, you, you can have a kind of voluntary compliance. And most important, an in interest. You're beginning to think, well, I will learn something by doing this. If I achieve that, then this, this is really domination. Uh, uh, Now, this is also extremely uh, important argument, right, Uh, that um, uh, um, uh, every privileged groups, people in position of power, uh, are developing a myth uh, of their superiority, we are developing a myth uh, that this is uh, uh, useful for you to obey. So the essence right of legitimacy, that it has a certain, uh, expect you to believe in the reasons what those in position of power try to justify their power, but also an understanding that this is a myth, because this is a right, comes to very close to Nietzsche, right? This is, the, Nietzsche is, sticking his head out here, right? Uh, it is a mythology. It's not really true, right? You just internalize your own uh, submission to the authority, right? But, you, uh, but the tendency in history is that you will internalize it. So this is very different from what we normally say, legitimacy, because by legitimacy in contemporary political discourse refers, well, Uh, uh, Karzai is not legitimate because he was faking the elections. If elections are fair. Um, and free, then uh, the person who is elected is a legitimate lu- ruler. No, 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 that's not Weber's view. It's not uh, uh, universal uh, suffrage and free and fair elections what makes the ruler legitimate. What makes the ruler legitimate that the ruler is capable to develop mythologies, to justify that you better obey the orders what is given to you, because you have some self-interest to do so and you have some level of belief that it is actually not bad for you to do what the ruler wants you to do, right? Now there are different types uh, of uh, domination and authority. And this is where he clashes, right, with Marx. As you, as we have seen, Marx Marx developed his typology of societies uh, from economic systems. Economy drives history. Uh, um, Weber is a Nietzschean, Hobbesian or Nietzschean, right? But drives history is power, struggle for power. And the nature of power, how power is constructed, and how our power is, sublimated right into a domination, to put it in the Freudian way. Uh, that is how sh- you should understand how societies operate. So it is not modes of production what describes the evolution of history, but types of domination which describes the evolution of history. And there are really three types of uh, 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 what he calls legitimate authorities. There are three ways how rulers in history legitimated their rules. It can be legal, rational, uh, easily you can say liberal, uh, traditional, and charismatic. And we will spend uh, time on this, each one of them. I just very briefly want to tell you what uh, uh, these different authorities are. Legal, rational authority is a system in which um, there is a belief in the legality of enacted rules. Uh, uh, and those who are actually issuing the commands, they themselves are bound by those rules. By, this is the rule of law. That's why he calls legal rational authority. It is rule of law administered in a bureaucratic manner. You do not have a personal master. You do not ab- obey a person. You obey the rules of the game, right? And, the, and these rules of the game are prescribed, you know, in advance beca- before you act. It is set and you follow these rules. That is legal rational authority. This is not identical with, uh, uh, with democracy. It can be democratic. Or it can be authoritarian, it can be actually uh, a a constitutional monarchy, right? A constitutional monarch passed laws by a separate legislature, which was or was not democratically elected, but everybody knew who the the rules of the game are, right, Uh, in a constitutional monarchy, 18th century, early 19th century England, no democratically elected parliament, right? But the laws were there and the monarch followed the uh, laws. That was legal rational authority. Uh, um, uh, Then you have traditional authority. Traditional authority, he said, rests on the established belief on the sanctity of immemorial traditions and the legitimacy of those exercising the authority under them. In some ways, you know, when you are obeying your father, you are uh, acting under traditional authority. Uh, the authority what your father has is ascribed to your father by tradition, right? We know that this is something what fathers do have a legitimate right to say, right? Uh, that in fact, you know, fathers do have a legitimate right to say that by midnight you have to be at home, right? They kind of Are not very happy about this, you know. When you were 16, you started to revolt against this, but you know you accepted. This is normally what you know, fathers, you know, or mothers do say, you know, and you know you also said, well, uh, um, uh, you did something, and therefore for this weekend you cannot go out, right? Uh, They are acting out of traditional authority, uh, uh, authority which is ascribed to them by tradition. uh, and finally, there is charismatic authority. This is a very complex issue. We will talk about this a great deal. Charismatic authority refers to the fact when a leader is trying to uh, uh, legitimate its right to issue commands, that he has some extraordinary character, that he is something like, uh, uh, you know, an extraordinary, unusual uh, person. What is also very important to see, uh, that uh, they are often seen as supernatural or even superhuman, uh, having exceptional qualities. Uh, But what is also very important to see, uh, that charismatic authority in Weber is not really the characteristics of the individual. This is what we attribute to the individuals to have these extraordinary characteristics. In the most recent U.S. history, during the electoral, uh, uh, during the presidential campaign, uh, Barack Obama, with his uh, 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 you know charming personality, which is extraordinary, skills of delivering speeches, was capable to create uh, um, a kind of charismatic aura around himself, right? People got excited, you know, almost like around a rock star, right? They, and his whole uh, arguments for trying to legitimate himself was very much uh, uh, cast in charismatic terms, right? Uh, hope you can believe in, right? This is a very typical charismatic appeal. You have to believe in me. Because I'm offering you hope in a hopeless situation, right? That's what creates charismatic authority. How much charismatic authority President Obama still has, this is another question, right? What you may want to discuss in the discussion section. It's also a problem whether, you know, Candidate Obama was really a charismatic leader. Uh, Weber basically chari- defined charismatic leaders as the great leaders, creat- uh, the, the makers of great world religions. Jesus Christ was a charismatic leader. So, in some ways, to say modern politicians they are charismatic, it's a bit slippery. But I think. The emphasis on hope and uh, the call, you believe me, because I will be able to deliver. Yes, we can. You know, I remember when I first heard him saying that. I said, yeah, that's exactly the charismatic appeal, right? It's not quite reasoned out, right? It is, and it moved me when, when, he, uh, when Barack Obama came out and he said, you think nothing can be done? But yes, we can. Hope you can believe in, right? This is very much a charismatic appeal. That's what charismatic authority is all about.